thank you very much, Shailen and Polly, for inviting me and for organizing this really exciting uh, opportunity. Um, odd world, I guess, that we live in, that we have to do all online, but it's a great chance of speaking with people um, not around our uh, dreary island. Uh, I want to start my talk with a um, question, and it sounds like a very simple question. It's who is John Bibi? Um, it seems very simple because everyone has heard about John Bibi. Uh, she has been present in the public imagination of India since at least 1700 as a royal type in painting, usually hawking, as a symbol of leadership by the side of Akbar or Krishna Devaraya. Uh, or she appears in some writings as a role model for young women next to uh, Marani Lakshmibai of Jhansi, uh, Sita, or even uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, historical novels in Hindi, Kannada, and English commemorate her, as well as an issue of the graphic novel um, of the uh, Amar Chitrakata series. Her memory appears to have a life of its own in a way, uh, but this memory seems to exist out of history in a way. Modern historiography is not much helpful here. Um, the, the few books we have on the history of the Deccan Sultanates accept her position of power. No one ignores her, but there is no questioning of the environment that made um, her appearance possible. Instead, both academic and popular work uh, emphasize her uniqueness by placing her somehow as not standing as part of history, just stepping outside history. But Chan Bibi is very much of a historical figure who played an important role in two courts, in Bijapur and Ahmadnagar, and in very particular moments. As such, her actions were anchored in particular political settings and social practices. In this paper, I try to explain her career on this background of the historiography around her. Employing Persian chronicles as our main source, I argue that her actions do not fully, uh, fully conform to the analytical frameworks commonly used elsewhere in the early modern Muslim world. This indicates potential limitations of this very framework, suggesting that we need a more nuanced view to understand uh, questions of gender, household, and um, on the margins of this Persian net world. So examining Chan Bibi presents a basic problem. In the context of the Deccan Sultanates, questions of gender and royal household attract very little attention. Fortunately, this issue is discussed elaborately in other parts of the early modern Muslim world, and the discussion offers as a very good entry point, and in particular, I have the Mughal context in mind. So in the 16th century, the organization and concept of the state underwent significant changes with uh, impact, uh, which impacted the way in which the royal household operated. With the intensification of hierarchical structures, the royal household increased in significance and its role was systematized. A useful, even if a little bit dated and problematic, way to look at this is in association with the Weberian model of the patrimonial bureaucratic state adapted by Stephen Blake to the Mughal case. 
this uh, shift in, in the relationship between uh, state and household was both instrumental and reflective of a profound ideological shift in the very idea of kingship of empire uh, to which sacrality, millenarianism and the body of the king became central. The elevation of the political and symbolic uh, position of the king and his household defined not only the state as a whole, but also as it is so much attached to the household, also gender relations became very important in its functioning and its definitions. Um, our very own Rosalind O'Hanlon demonstrates that gendered terms were significant in the articulation of the king and the household. The king became the, uh, what she calls the embodiment of male virtue. The anticipated code from the nobles likewise, likewise emphasized masculinity in the construction of the imperial moral framework. On the other side of the process, the position of royal women uh, was heavily regulated. They were venerated, so they became or, or they were squeezed up the hierarchy alongside the rest of the household. But within the household, their position was increasingly enclosed and restricted. So we can talk about two kinds of separation emerging in this period. First is physical. The space which the royal family occupied was reorganized to promote new ideologies. The art historian Guru Nejipolu suggests that gender was central to the spatial organization of uh, the palaces uh, and what she uh, terms as uh, women were kept away from public view. Regardless of their actual power, it, it, they were physically separated and therefore could exercise power through the services of intermediaries and others. The second set of separations or, or dividing lines is not physical as much as discursive. I've mentioned the ideological um, ethical works that define domestic relations in the royal household and, uh, and further out to nobles and increasingly larger circles as discussed by, by um, Paul Johanlon. More broadly, official chronicles did not leave much space for royal women. Just like in the physical uh, world, their appearance in the text was highly regulated, usually in association with their uh, gendered role in the household building an image of a charitable um, or, or benevolent state or maintaining a dynastic stability within the royal family, for example, in case of rebelling princes. So their role was very clear in smoothing things up within the royal household. These uh, mentions, uh, these limited mentions of women only emphasize the role within clearly defined spaces. How does Chan Bibi fit into this kind of narratives? For most of her lifetime, her actions and the discussion thereof fit well into these patterns. She was born on an undisclosed date. It was not reported by the chroniclers to Sultan Hussein Nizam Shah I of Ahmadnagar and Khan, uh, Khanzada Humayun, 
and she was the sister of the future sultans Murtaza I and Burhan II. First time we ever hear about her was in 1564 as part of marriage alliance. She was married to Ali Adil Shah I of Bijapur, while Ali's sister married uh, Chand Bibi's brother Murtaza and moved to Ahmadnagar. This agreement was part of building military alliance against Vijayanagara, leading to the Battle of Talikota a few months later. Um, moving to Bijapur, Chand Bibi returns to obscurity. So we have this very passive mention of uh, mentioning of her for for one moment and then she disappears for 15 years. So her name surfaces again only in 1580, following the assassination of her husband Ali. The Sultan left no issue. It was agreed among the nobles to install a nine-year-old boy uh, named Ibrahim on the throne. This is of course Ibrahim Adil Shah II. The reign of any young boy usually brought uh, to political struggles in the court around the identity of the region um, with the promise of the one who holds uh, this, uh, this position of regent uh, um, a lot of power, influence. And because still the household was central in this process, it really allowed women uh, to play an important role within the restrictions that we uh, marked before. So in the next few years, we see continuous struggles between few regions and the uh, royal women. Uh, we don't have time to get into details. I just want to mention a few points. So Chan Bibi is first mentioned in this context. The court historian Firishta, who wrote later for Ibrahim II, the then uh, child uh, Sultan, reports that she was put in charge of the Sultan's education, a clearly domestic activity. Her role became more explicitly political in the coming years. Uh, the first regent, Kamil Khan, tried to sway the harem by installing his people in key positions and actually pay personally uh, to, to staff in order to buy their uh, loyalty. In response, we see, we see Chan Bibi writing uh, letters to other nobles uh, to mobilize them to stage a coup against him in favor of another regent, Kishwar Khan. It worked for her. Kishwar Khan uh, rose to power, himself trying to undermine the royal household by uh, accusing Chand Bibi of inciting her brother Murtaza, by then the Sultan in uh, Ahmadnagar, to invade. He even sent eunuchs and women of his own household to take Chand Bibi out of the harem and imprisoned her in Satara Fort. This was seen as a breach of etiquette, bringing to an um, uprising that forced Kishwar Khan um, out of Bijapur. The following region brought Chand Bibi back to the capital, but at this point we see her position declining in favor of Ibrahim's actual mother, whose name we do not know, and she, the mother, continued to maintain the harem as an important power center, but Chand Bibi is kind of fizzling from record. With her declining position and Ibrahim coming of age, by 1585, she returns to her ancestral Ahmadnagar. So notwithstanding the impressive uh, power she mastered, Chand Bibi's years in Bijapur, uh, or at least the representation thereof, comply with the boundaries we have marked before. She appears only when her presence was needed to protect the royal family, two in her case, 
uh, political marriages and the defense of a minor sultan from the usurpation of um, or by overenthusiastic noblemen. The spatial aspect follows the lines that we have seen in the Mughal case. The one time that she leaves the harem is not voluntary, uh, and even though Kishwar Khan kept parda uh, rules by sending women and eunuchs, uh, the action was seen as severe and he was penalized for it. Not much has changed upon Chand Bibi's return to Ahmadnagar. And we hear nothing about her uh, for a decade, even as the Sultanate, uh, Sultanate was experiencing an uh, existential, uh, existential crisis. But with the death of her brother Burhan II in 1595, she surfaces again. And here is where we see the really interesting things that made her famous. So as we have seen, a royal woman could not act independently, but only in the interest of a male sovereign. Chan Bibi understood it and chose to show initiative. Instead of letting others decide the identity of the successor, she promoted her own candidate, her great nephew, Bahadur. She was not the only one who thought about this trick though. And in the coming months, we see different parties fighting over which infant or which member of the Nizam Shai family would be the legitimate heir. Chan Bibi maneuvered her way between those parties and positioned herself as the only viable option in Ahmadnagar itself, in the capital. Her success attracted more nobles to, uh, to her camp, gradually building her power base. Now, Prince Bahadur was not in Ahmadnagar. He was kept uh, imprisoned by one of her rivals in Daulatabad. This allowed her to step away from the norms within which she operated. The historian Tabatabai reports, and I'm quoting here, in order to appease the minds of the nobles and the commoners, Her Majesty Bilkis, carrying the banner of Alexander the Great, appeared from one of the citadel's bastions on her son resembling self. Her parcel of divine shadow was like the loftiness and grace spreading twin stars of Polaris. It was a third luminary. This parcel spread its phoenix-like wings of felicity and prosperity, casting the shadow of the dynasty over kingdom and people. Now, this position is very unusual. For the first time, we encounter Chan Bibi leaving the harem, uh, the harem voluntarily and appearing in public, breaking both spatial and discursive walls. While acting in the name of another king, she used the royal insignia to present herself as the sovereign. The chronicler takes part in this effort by employing astrological terminology to present divine blessing to her rule in a manner typical elsewhere in the Persianate world. And he continues, I'm quoting here, the one who is known as assistance of God, the beneficent ruler, the victorious over rebels and enemies, Chand Bibi Sultan, owner of the two worlds, meaning this and the next world, asylum of Islam and the Muslims, shelter of the weak and the wretched, daughter of the late Hussein Nizam Shah, who is a Jamshid-like emperor, whose army is like Alexander's, whose turban is like the sun, and whose court is like heaven. May Allah extend the ropes of the tent of her compassion and the shadow of her majesty, 
elevate the banner of her uh, victory and extend her remaining months and years on the crossroads of the two worlds, which is reference to Earth. With this passage, Tabatabai cements Chand Bibi's position as a sovereign. He strongly diverges from the tradition that associ uh, associates royal women uh, with certain qualities. So while occasionally he is using the term of the name Bilkis, the Queen of Sheba, a common way to call royal women throughout the Persian uh, writing, and note she is herself a sovereign, she is the Queen of Sheba, the bulk of the narrative does not attribute Chan Bibi with feminine qualities such as chastity and modesty, and we actually see those attributes used when she's described in Bijapur, but not by Tabatabai in Ahmad Nagar. Instead, she is depicted in masculine qualities emanating from herself and positioned as a successor of her father. Note that Burhan is not appearing in the story at all. Uh, sorry, Bahadur, uh, her great nephew, the, the, the official sovereign. Now, this did not end the political troubles, and we see potential candidates to replace Chand Bibi's minor king kept appearing. Uh, one of them is very interesting. It's the septuagenarian Shah Ali, son of Burhan I. So, Chan Bibi's uncle. In December in 1595, the Mughals also arriving with Prince Murad besieging the capital. Chan Bibi wrote to all party leaders for help and some complied. Even Shah Ali, her uncle, arrived in the capital. But even in this moment with a mature male member of the Nizam Shahi family, Chan Bibi's position does not seem to be challenged at all and suggested she was actually widely accepted. This allowed her to continue with royal duties, which Tabatabai uh, reports um, as including taking care of the army and religious uh, matters and all matters of government. This leadership is reflected in the following uh, interesting case for which we have uh, two versions and it's interesting to compare them. So, um, after a few months of siege, the Mughals managed to explode a mine under the wall of Ahmadnagar and created a bridge. In these traumatic moments, there are of course the very literary descriptions of the commanders running away and hiding in corners and uh, uh, tunnels. Um, but this is where things get very unusual. Tabatabai report, and I quote, the commanders and notables hastened to the queen's attendance in order to strengthen her warriors and to ensure the continuation of the battle, they brought her from the harem to the place of the bridge. When the sun resembling parcel of that Bilkis, which carries the banner of Solomon, cast the shadow of protecting and favor over the heads of the, no of the nobles, it increased the power and ability of the Mars-like warriors a thousand times more and brought their one strong hand uh, out of the sleeve of bravery. Once again, Tabatabai emphasizes her bodily presence and visibility uh, as a key to motivating people. This telling is particularly interesting comparing to the version told by Firishta, then in Bijapur, he left uh, Ahmad Nagar about six or seven years before that. And I quote Firishta, Chand Bibi, upon hearing about the terrible incident, wore the burqa, 
put an armor, and barefoot, she took a sword in her head. With a group of men who were present in her service, she gracefully walked out of the harem, approached the wall on a horseback, and went towards the bridge. The people of the fort felt obliged, and from corners where they have been hiding, they hastened to her attendance. The stories are similar, including the significance of Chand Bibi's presence, yet Fiorishta emphasizes much more feminine aspects of her. First of all, the burqa, to make sure that we don't even think that she's not keeping some sort of parda, so she's veiled, and she keeps her chastity. She walks gracefully, and the part of her visibility is somewhat underplayed. Note also the absence of the parasol, the symbol of sovereignty, which Tabatabai emphasizes, but it's abandoned for something quite weird, the, the idea of armor and sword, but barefoot. This emphasizes yet another masculine quality Tabatabai attributes to her. And this is bravery. And actually, this idea of bravery appears even uh, in Firishta's text and the Mughal Khafikhan, who wrote some century, uh, a bit over a century later. But it's a mere footnote for them. For Tabatabai, it becomes a very central aspect of her reign. And he re reports that during these events, elephant drivers tried to shield her from enemy fire but she refused and expressed her willingness to die by the hand of the enemy. So at the end of the affair, the Mughals were pushed to negotiations. Naturally, Chan Bibi uh, oversaw the negotiations as the actual or the sovereign in practice. Uh, Tabatabai used the negotiations to again position her as an accepted sovereign. He reports that the Mughal field commander, Sadiq Muhammad Atalik, said to Chand Bibi, um, um, to, to Chand Bibi's representative, uh, Afzal Khan, and I quote, you are waiting and hoping like a eunuch that a woman in the fort will come to your rescue or that you will get assistance from her. Thus, of course, insulting his masculinity by the very fact that he is serving a woman. This did not convince Afzal Khan, who expressed his long-standing loyalty to the rulers of the Deccan, once again, emphasizing Chan Bibi's role as a sovereign. Of course, we have to remember that this text is written by the one source who is trying to emphasize uh, Chan Bibi's leadership and not necessarily records a real conversation. But this is another way in which Tabatabai construct um, gender issues into this narrative. At the end of the affair, a treaty was eventually signed, but uh, three years Three, four years later, uh, Akbar moves south. His army, now under uh, Prince Daniel, uh, arrives in the fort. Chandibi understood that at uh, this time she would not be able to resist and open negotiations. Several commanders blamed her for conspiracy with the Mughals, and she was assassinated in 1600. How can we make any sense of this really unusual story? and of the way uh, the Persian narratives tell it. In part, the story follows the um, lines known elsewhere in the Persian world, appearing in particular times and in particular a uh, role uh, as the royal woman protecting a young sovereign or, or in marriage 
in which he's very passive. But her final years are very different of, and, and I, I want to emphasize a few points here. First of all, she shows a great initiative, not in taking advantage of an existing opportunity, by, but by creating one for herself, pushing someone that she knows that she will be able to control. Second is with the assistance of Tabatabai, she built her position as a sovereign on her own right, even if not officially, using both symbols of royalty and male attributes. In a sense, she's positioned not as a queen, but if we think about it carefully about the imagery, she is actually the king of Ahmadnagar. Third, she defied all spatial norms by showing herself in public. And lastly, the chronicles did not use her gender against her. Of course, not Abatabai, but not also Firishta and Shirazi, the other two main sources from the Deccan, both under patronage of um, Ibrahim Adil Shah II, who was very sympathetic with her. So that might be part of the story. But all this presents strong divergence from the practice elsewhere in the early modern, uh, modern period uh, in the Persian world. I suggest to see this as a manifestation of the unique character of the local political idiom. As the royal household sits within the political system, varieties of state structures would naturally affect the gendered aspect of it. And here I follow the work of the feminist geographer Doreen Massey, who links together gender roles, structures of society and the constructions um, of space. These variations are difficult to trace as our main sources, the chronicles, operate within the same discursive realm of the early modern Persian world. This can explain the silence around Chand Bibi, except in those moments when such references were acceptable, for example, marriage or period of regency. But this observation explains the discourse. We remain with the question, why was the story so different? How did it all, what were the circumstances that enabled her to work? Um, I suggest that we have to read it not as a Persian story of a Muslim uh, queen as much as a Deccani story, or at least to examine this option. I argue elsewhere that the Deccan Sultanates did not replicate the imperial models of the um, Muslim East, as most expressed by the Mughals and the Ottomans, but created their own version of the state in which local idioms were significant or even central in shaping the political language in a less regulated way. It may be then that the local language allowed Chandbibi to operate this way so, uh, so successfully that her historian tried to codify it into the Persian discourse. But tracing the origin of this action is not easy. And this is where we have a little bit of a problem. And I have to suggest here something quite speculative. While working against proper histor uh, historical process, so going in the wrong direction here, there are a few interesting examples from the decades after her death that might be interesting here. For example, the Ethiopian Hamid, uh, Hamid Khan and his unnamed wife took over political affairs in Ahmednagar in the 16-teens, and the sources talk about them as a couple running the show. 
In the mid 17th century, we see the wife of an unnamed Deshmukhs of Mahur leading armies against the Mughals, gaining her the name Raibagin or Tigress. And there is, of course, no need to introduce two very important women of the Bhonsle family, Jijabai, Shivaji's mother, and Shivaji's daughter-in-law, Tarabai, who both had an extremely important political uh, role. Now, examples before Chand Bibi are much more difficult to find, but we do have one. And this is Chand Bibi's mother, Khanza Daumayun, who after the death of Hussein I, acted as the all-powerful reg regent of her son, Murtaza. The resemblance of the two women was noted even by the chronicler Shirazi uh, of Bijapur, who, who says it explicitly. So far, it's still a story that we might know from many places, but there is one unusual thing about Hansa Daumayun, and this is her depiction in a series of images in a royal copy of the panegyric text Tarife, uh, Tarife Hussein Shahi, um, from the, the copies from 1565, a few months before Hussein's death. Mark Zebrowski suggested her position is very unusual here, not only as official painting of a queen, but she's positioned as a consort of a Hindu god. Now, this last comment offers the possibility that we have here a local tradition that at the same time made Chan Bibi's actions acceptable and stood at odds with the norms of the early modern royal household. So as a concluding remark, I think that understanding Chan Bibi as a maverick explains neither her character nor the history of Ahmad Nagar or the Deccan as a whole. An analysis of her actions within the norms set by the Persian sources is also problematic as the historiographical framework itself, one that marks her as unusual, seems ill-suited to accept the fact that we have such a big variation, and in particular when we think who were the target audiences of the writers of these chroniclers, people who share these values of the Persianate world. So instead, I suggest that we should think of ways to integrate these local circumstances and practices into the understanding of women the royal household and the state in the early modern world and to the way in which we read those uh, sources which are not complying to these practices in order to find signs of this kind of locality in this Persian cosmopolitan uh, writing. I think that uh, this is it for me. Thank you very much, Roy, for uh, a very interesting paper. Um, participants are most welcome to uh, put questions in the comment box. Uh, but since we are in in the in the, um, uh, the in this kind of organizer room, um, um, I, I believe uh, any of the organizers here in this room, Polly, Shraddha, uh, anyone else would like to go first in asking a question? Uh, um, uh, Shailen, um, can you help me? Uh, the comment box is that. Um, I'm not quite sure where the comment box is. I see it, it has a little um, two little sound uh, uh, voice bubbles next to on the on the taskbar, and it says Q and A. Oh, it's Q and A, is it? Yeah. 
it's live event Q&A, so you can, you, if you type in there, so, uh, okay. yeah. Okay. So, um, but, anyway, I, but you can ask, ask your question verbally, everybody will okay. hear it, yeah. yeah. Yes, sorry, thank you very much indeed, Roy. Uh, I, of course, um, your talk has many fascinating implications, and I mean, can we see these um, perceptions, at least, of Chan Bibi as being connected with the much more, you know, obviously with the um, a decany milieu in which um, warrior uh, peasant communities with with horizontal ties of allegiance rather than the, uh, 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 rather than more vertical forms of social organisation um, uh, is does this belong to um, a, a, a tradition of independent powerful women? Uh, you know, of the sort that by the 18th century is becoming a kind of cliche. You know, um, uh, you, you'll know that the 18th century remarks about, oh, well, these Maratha women, they're very bold and they ride around everywhere on horseback showing their faces and and so on. I mean, could, could we see, um, is that where you think Chan Bibi's, these illustrations of Chan Bibi belongs? Uh, I, I, I do. I, I really do. I, I think that there is no there is no other way to understand her. She definitely is not within this cosmopolitan Islamicate milieu. She cannot sit there. Mm -hmm. um, and this tension between her behaving in a certain way and the fact that it is never used against her mm -hmm. suggests that there is something in the social milieu that allows it. And, and in that sense, I do think, and in, in, let's say, in other places, I show how strongly, or at least how strongly, the, the early Marathas, the 17th century Marathas, remember Ahmad Nagar as kind of part of their milieu. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I do think that, yeah, they were operating along similar lines. The problem is that, and that's the chronological problem, is that we have this cliche of the 18th century, but to what degree can we apply to the 16th century? And I, I don't know uh, if we have sources to say mm. anything about these milieus in the 16th century in mm. that sense. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Um, th thank you, Roy. That's all kinds of promising, interesting, intriguing directions for research. I see there are other questions now. Um, I'm sure Shailen will want to put them to you. Yes, that's fine. Um, there is one uh, question from Shaunak, and it says, um, thank you for such a fascinating talk, Professor Fischel. Your analysis of Chan Bibi was extremely insightful. Could you tell us about Chan Bibi's negotiations with Abdul Rahim Khane Khana uh, during the Mughal siege of Ahmednagar? Secondly, and in that vein, how is Chan Bibi represented in contemporary Mughal Persian sources? Um, we don't have that much about her in the Mughal sources, so including the side of the negotiations. It is mentioned by Abul Fazl, um, but it is a very brief affair that kind of she's there. Um, from, yeah, I'll have to go back to those sources. I, I don't have a very good response now, it's just that from my impression in the past is that she's not downplayed, but the whole affair 
is kind of pushed a little bit aside the negotiations, I mean, in 1595-96, because they were a little bit of an embarrassment to the Mughals. They came, a prince was sent and was defeated by them. So they didn't have much interest in elaborating there so much. We do know that eventually um, the, the result of the negotiations was um, that Chan Bibi ceded uh, Berar to the Mughals and the, the Mughals took over, sent one of their commanders who was actually originally the governor of Berar uh, after 1574, after Ahmad Nagar conquered the region and then defected to the side of the Mughals, returned with their army, took over, and the nobles the, uh, who served Ahmad Nagar on the place just um, made Mughal control over the region impossible. And that's why that was the Mughal excuse to taking over, um, uh, over uh, oh, restarting the campaign against Ahmad Nagar. I will need to revisit Abul Fazl to give you a better answer than that, I'm afraid. Thanks. Um, the second question is from Rahul Magar, and he asks, Ibrahim II wrote a poem on Chan Bibi in which she was treated like a noble queen, but not as a warrior or administrator who played an important role in the Deccan. How do you look at this in the context of rivalry between the Deccanese Sultanates? Um, it's, a, it's an excellent question. First of all, in his poems, it's always unclear who he means. It might be that it's not the this Chan Bibi because he has poems on Chan Bibi in a little bit more amorous way. So I really want to believe that it's not about his uh, aunt. Uh, and it's a very common trope kind of or common title. Second, uh, by the time that Ibrahim writes his poems, in particular after 1600, there is no rivalry with Ahmad Nagar. Ahmad Nagar is almost um, a, well, it's almost a dead horse. Um, it's the, the capital is conquered. We have Malik Amba organi uh, organized, but there is no real competition between royal houses. So in that sense, by that time, um, it is all declined in that sense. So the, the competition that we may have seen a bit earlier and continuing for much later uh, between Bijapur and Golconda, Ahmad Nagar is kind of out of the game by 1600. And the last bit about that is the relationship between Ahmad, uh, between Ahmad Nagar and Bijapur when Chan Bibi is in charge. Um, in a way, significant part of the power that uh, Chan Bibi was able to maintain or convince others to cooperate with them was with Ibrahim's army at the border, uh, willing to help her. And it was clear, the sources are quite clear about, and that's why I said that um, the chronicles written under Ibrahim are sympathetic to her. Um, it is um, very much kind of, um, Let's say it is her endeavor, but it seems like the relationship remained very good for quite some time. Um, 
Back to the first point, it just popped in my mind uh, about her images, even if it is this Chanbibi that he is writing uh, on. In his poetry, Ibrahim is talking about uh, beauty and wisdom and music. Um, it's not also very much um, war-infused kind of writing. And it might be that this is part of the way that he describes the ideal um, person that he sees. He does not talk about himself in military terms either. So in that sense, that might explain it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, unfortunately, we are um, running out quickly out of time, but there is a question by Prachi Deshpande, which has uh, received a lot of attention from the participants. And I think this is going to be probably the last question that we can take. But the rest of the questions, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send it to you, Roy, and mm -hmm. uh, then you could take the liberty to respond to them, you know, privately. Um, um, from wherever they are, the emails of all the participants will be available through Claire. So you know we could we could set up a network in case people want to you know have their questions answered at a later date as well. I hope that's all right with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, I would love that. Prachi's Prachi's question is: uh, Can you say a bit more about the feminist geography framework you are invoking and how it might help understand gendered representations of the region? or of the individual figures in the subcontinent. Um, we got to make this snappy in two, three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, <laughs> um, the, the, this is an issue that started being used. It, it's a terrific question and, and really uh, one that needs more attention, I, I think, uh, generally speaking, in the way that we look at uh, history. So uh, Doreen Massey and others, uh, we have uh, Martina Löw uh, wrote a little bit about that. Um, they used the, the, the framework of the first generation of feminist geographers from the 70s um, to create an understanding of construction of space as represent, first of all, as, um, and that's um, Doreen Massey, is changeable all the time. So space is not set, but it is always responding to and associated with the changing circumstances and the social uh, affairs which is responding to them. So if we look at the activity of women, what is permitted, what is not permitted, where they can venture, where they can uh, transgress norms, or what the norms are, we cannot talk about this kind of overall uh, ideal um, lying around, and that's the way that I take it to history, but we have to look at particularities of certain circumstances and to embrace the fact that they constantly change in order to, to, to understand the broader social uh, setting. That's really in an nutshell she wrote quite a few books about that so um but but i really think that a good starting point is to engage with uh, the work of of doreen uh, massey thanks very much uh, roy i think um, we are um just um right on the on the queue uh, i had a question as